Louise Cooney's Open Book, a Go Loud original podcast. Hello, you're very welcome back. This is Louise Cooney and this is the second season of Open Book presented by Go Loud. I am so excited about this season because we're really focusing on honest conversations and just interviewing interesting people and learning about their stories and their life. And this week, we've got an amazing guest for you. We've got Sarah Knight, who is a New York Times bestselling author. Her first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, has been published in 30 languages and counting. Her TED Talk, The Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, has been viewed more than 10 million times. She has created the No Fucks Given Guides. There's five of them at the moment, and she is about to release her sixth one. She's currently living in the Caribbean, which is where she is videoing us from today. So I'm so excited to welcome her onto the podcast. Before we get into the books and all the great advice that you have in all of them, I have to ask you about your career before you were an author. This podcast started off as a book club. We launched during lockdown. It was like a really nice way for us to all connect and kind of stay in touch with people during lockdown. And, you know, books just bring people together and spark such interesting conversations. So how did that transition happen? How did you decide, OK, I'm I'm a book editor. I'm really successful but now it's time for me to move on and try something new. Well, it was uh, mostly out of desperation, to be totally honest with you. I had been working in New York City publishing for 15 years. I clawed my way up from editorial assistant to assistant editor and associate editor and editor. And finally, I was a senior editor working at Simon & Schuster in the last five years of my career. And honestly, everything was going so well. I had books on the bestseller list, fiction, nonfiction, you know, it was just really things were coming together, but I was falling apart. Uh, and I'd been experiencing panic and uh, anxiety and depression for a couple of years before I made the move. And I finally just kind of realized, like I said, out of desperation, something has to change. There's something about my life and the way I'm living it right now that just isn't working. And it wasn't the job. It wasn't working with authors and collaborating and working in publishing. I loved that. I love discovering new voices and talking about books. As you said, it's really, you know, one of the great equalizers uh, to bring people together. And what I didn't love was showing up every day, commuting to work at a corporation that did not always really value me for me (laughs) um, and not really being able to be myself uh, in the office as much as I wanted to be and not really being as autonomous as I wanted to be. And uh, so I had kind of a nervous breakdown Uh, and I decided I got to make a big change. So I really realized I wanted to work for myself and I quit my job. It took about a year to make that happen just financially and emotionally. And then I decided to go freelance. And when I did that as an editor, I had an idea for my first book. Shockingly, apparently I had been giving so many fewer fucks that that the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck was right here the whole time. So I wrote that. And then instead of being a freelance editor, I became an author in my own right. Wow. That's that's an incredible story. I know corporate life, it's like got so many rules and it's got so many kind of like routines in place that aren't designed for every type of person or for everybody to work to the best of their abilities. So I can imagine if you're not happy there. It's just really difficult to get into that routine and to get into the swing of it, I suppose. You said you had a nervous breakdown. How did you know that or did you even know at the time that's what you were going through? Well, when I passed out in my midtown Manhattan office building, that was a little bit of a clue. 
Uh, uh, let me go back just a tiny bit so that people can get oriented to this. Basically, you know, I had been in this job for 15 years. About five years previous to that, I'd had what I now realized was my first panic attack. Um, that happened. I was on the subway in the morning. I wasn't feeling well. It was about a 45-minute commute from Brooklyn where I was living to my office in Midtown. And, you know, I just was feeling worse and worse short of breath, nauseous. I thought, you know, am I hungover? Um, do I have food poisoning? Am I pregnant? Oh, geez. And I got, you know, into work. I dropped my stuff in my office. I went into the ladies' room, thought I was going to be sick. Nothing happened. Kind of went back and forth a couple of times, emailed my husband. I'm not feeling well. I don't know what's going on. And then my vision started to go. My whole body started to go numb. And I stood up and walked out to my office doorway and said to one of my coworkers, there's something really wrong with me like call my husband. And then I passed out. <laughs> so it turned out after discussions with the on-site nurse, thankfully at the time I worked for a place that had an on-site nurse and many other people in my life that that was a panic attack. And um, this was sort of the culmination of just a lot of built up stress and burnout and natural tendencies toward, you know, anxiety. And it still took me another, you know, several years after that to really listen, listen to what my body and my brain were telling me and um, had to happen a few more times. I had to see a couple of doctors. I had to try a bunch of different remedies. But finally, I just realized, you know, I'm coming home every day and I'm spending all night working toward this thing that I thought I wanted more than anything else to become a publisher in my own right, uh, be behind that desk forever. And as it turned out, it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to realize that something is not working for you the way you really, really, really wanted it to. But, you know, it was scary to take that risk to kind of separate myself from the career that I always thought I wanted more than anything else and start over. But, you know, my health came first, my mental health, uh, well, and my physical health <laughs> to a certain extent, because passing out in public is not super safe. <laughs> um, but yeah, then I, you know, I, I started over at age, what was I, 36 or so at the time. And it was scary. It was, it was tough to make that decision. But in the end, it really, I needed my mental health to be better. I needed something to give. And as it turned out, the, the thing that needed to give was a really big one. It was my career. Uh, obviously, it, it worked out well for me. <laughs> Um, but you know, what I try to tell people in my books is that you can have these big moments of epiphany. You can have this, the beginnings of this life-changing magic. It's, it's simple to say like, oh, I've just taken a hard look at my life and this is what needs to change, but it's not necessarily easy to make that change. And hopefully what I've been doing over the course of, you know, many of the no fucks given guides so far is helping, helping make it a little bit easier by giving people a blueprint for how to do it. I love that you say in the book, you have an option. And there's always an option. You can always change your mind. And I think that's so powerful. And I think a lot of us are programmed or were programmed. I think that's changing maybe a little bit as time goes on to have the nine to five, to climb that ladder, whether it makes you happy or not, you know, as long as it's stable and it's something that you can do long term. Whereas I think that's changing now. And I admire you so much for going after your dreams, you know, and and making it probably bigger and better than you ever even thought it could be. Um, I know you were a hugely successful editor before you went after your own dreams, but um, do you want to tell our audience a little bit of maybe the background of the types of books you were working on, just so they can understand the level at which you were working and the type of pressure you were dealing with? Sure. So when I had that very first panic attack, uh, it was when I was working at Random House. And just before I left there, I had acquired a book 
called Gone Girl. <laughs> so it's safe to say that I was really reaching all of my dreams of being a, you know, a really high level publishing industry mover and shaker. And I had actually edited Gillian's previous book, Dark Places. And then I left before Gone Girl was published. So the editing glory goes to the person who took it over after me. And I moved on to Simon & Schuster. And there I acquired what I hoped would be my next Gillian Flynn, a novel called Luckiest Girl Alive by Jessica Knoll. And it did indeed turn out to be the best-selling debut fiction of the year that it was published. So, you know, looking at the timeline, I ended up leaving Simon & Schuster right as Luckiest Girl Alive was being published. I had a nonfiction book called Come As You Are, The Surprising Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life by Emily Nagoski, which was also a worldwide bestseller on the nonfiction side. I had a humor book called The Last Testament written by the, the being behind the tweet of God on Twitter that was being adapted for a Broadway show at the time that I left Simon & Schuster. So really, I was checking all of the boxes of everything that I wanted to do with that career. Uh, and it, and it wasn't enough. And I don't say that to mean like, it's never enough. You know, I'm complaining. It was like that alone was not obviously going to sustain me because I was having so many, you know, much more urgent fires to put out that were related to trying to live that corporate life, which just turns out wasn't for me. Yeah. You're at the height of your career on paper. You're super, super successful on paper. But then I think it comes down to what you define as success. And if you're not healthy and happy, how can you possibly say I'm the most successful I've ever been, you know? And how can you enjoy that success if you can't leave the house because you're so nauseous and short of breath and depressed? So you were in the job for 15 years, maybe more. Did, did you struggle with that move to freelance? Oh, boy. Boy, did I struggle. Uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a type A, very ambitious overachiever. So I had laid out all of my ducks in a row. I had decided to quit a full year before I actually did so that I could save money, so that I could psych myself up, so that I could, you know, build a website on the sly and get ready to solicit freelance editorial clients and be ready to hit the ground running. Uh, so it wasn't actually a problem in terms of starting up my business. I had put all of the, you know, pieces in place for that, but just emotionally speaking, the risk and the and the fear and the am I doing the right thing um, and just kind of erasing my whole identity, which was really wrapped up in the success of my career at that time, was was difficult. It was hard and could not be more glad that I did it. And I wish I had done it another five years earlier. Uh, but it you know it it wasn't uh, it wasn't a walk in the park. You wrote something about that about your identity being so closely aligned with your career, and I really understand that and. It's something that I've had to work on as well. So like you, I also was in a corporate job. I was definitely not in it 15 years, not half, like not a quarter as, as successful as you were, but it was still a risk and still a decision to make to go, you know, and be self-employed and you're leaving that safety net. You're leaving your sick days, your holiday days, your pension, you're leaving all these things. Like now I'm glad I've, I've done it, but it's still that ongoing thing where you, you, you don't have that, that safety net as such, you know. Yeah. And you also don't have a crystal ball. You know, you can't know for sure if something is going to be better or worse or better in some ways and worse in others. Uh, the only thing to do is to try it. You know, sometimes people hear my story and they say, well, I just, you know, I can't afford to walk out on my career. I can't afford to leave my job. And that's why I try to stress that I didn't just one day decide that I was going to walk into my boss's office, slam the door and say, I'm out of here. You know, it took some preparation, both logistical and, and mental. But you know, one step in front of the other, small manageable chunks. And I do think that it's worth, you know, 
at least exploring those alternatives if if you're as unhappy as I was in the present. Yeah. I, what I always say about it was, for me anyway, and it sounds like it was the same for you, a calculated risk. So, you know, you're planning, you're, you're foreseeing what's the worst that could happen and what am I going to do if that does happen, you know? But um, absolutely, you had a dream to move out to the Dominican Republic, which is where you're videoing us from today, which is incredible. Yes. Once I wasn't tied to New York City anymore as kind of the publishing capital of the United States, my husband and I thought, well, this other thing that we've been really wanting to do for a long time seems like it might be feasible. Uh, and this was, of course, in, back in 2015, 2016, before remote work really took off uh, like it did during the pandemic years. So it's a little ahead of the game on that as well. And it's not without its challenges uh, to move from from the first world to the third world and all of the, you know, difficult new experiences that that entails, including internet connectivity, which is tough for a remote worker uh, when that's not going particularly well. And, uh, you know, learning a new language, uh, you know, let alone anything else. I'm somebody who has spent my entire life and career banking on how well I can express myself in English. And now I have to do it in Spanish <laughs> just to, you know, just to get by in my day to day. You know, so there's a lot that happened with that that was also fun. And it was sort of enforced tranquility for somebody like me who had been so anxious leading up to that move. It was like, look, sometimes you just have to go with the flow when you're down here. But, you know, it also really, again, kind of uh, opened my eyes to the fact that while it was a calculated risk, it paid off in a major way for me just in terms of my my mental health and, and the way I get through every day and the way I'm in charge of my days. Um, and, you know, just kind of thought winter is a choice and uh, I choose no. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you ever have any regrets about moving? I mean, regrets? No. Will I stay here forever? Also, probably not. Uh, I think that, you know, one thing that I learned out of this entire saga of, you know, moving to New York and working in this industry for 15 years and, and quitting to work for myself and moving to a foreign country where I've now been living for seven or eight years is that, you know, change happens and it's okay and we can be comfortable with it and we don't have to think like, okay, this is it for the rest of my life. This is the path that I'm on. So, I've learned a lot from living down here. I've learned a lot from having a house. I never had a house before. I lived mm -hmm. in tiny little New York apartments. Yeah. You know, I went from a dorm room to a New York apartment. So I've learned all kinds of things about uh, about homeownership, which, yeah. you know, is also kind of difficult in this climate and, and whatnot. I've learned about tarantulas. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, is it a regret? No. Would I like to live somewhere where there aren't giant spiders? Maybe. I, yeah. That would be my next... Yeah. Next move. Change is when you're growing, I think, you know, and when you're pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone, that's when you're learning. I also used to live in New York. I lived there before COVID. And I also, like you, developed quite bad anxiety living there, like the pace of life. And then I moved, I had to move back because of COVID. And I was a little bit like you in a very isolated, remote cottage, isolating. It was the complete opposite, you know, from like all the noise of New York to like complete silence. Yeah. And it was bliss. It was like, maybe this is the change I needed. And I actually, I never moved back. So it's it's interesting. Sometimes change can be the making of you. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're conditioned sometimes to believe that we have to choose a thing and work at it. And that if we don't want to do it anymore, it's a failure. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. You know, to make a change is not to, to say that you've failed. Sometimes you have failed and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's all right to think of it as like a new opportunity mm -hmm. and not just like a door that's closed, Yeah, you know, through anything that you did wrong. 
So you've had many books, but to move to your first book, The Mm -hmm. Life-Changing Art of Not Giving a Fuck. It's been translated to 30 plus languages. Mm -hmm. It's been a New York Times bestseller. You did a TED Talk based around it with over 10 million views. Mm -hmm. It just really resonated with people. Why do you think people were drawn to it so much and it just came at a time when people really needed it? So this is fascinating to me personally, because as a book editor, I am so intimately familiar with the notion that not all books work, you know, so few of them become runaway hits. Uh, and it doesn't always depend on how how relatively good they are or how famous or not famous the author is. It's just, you know, it's alchemy. And so I was not expecting much. I knew I had a great idea. I knew that I executed it well, but I just, you know, would not have been surprised if it had kind of just gone off the radar, you know, two months after it published, just like so many books do. So I have now had the opportunity for the last seven years to hear from people all over the world. And I think that what unites um, the the audience of this book is a sense of liberation, um, a sense of me, just random person, not an expert, you know, not not somebody that, you know, uh, that has any business really telling you what to do, but giving you permission to act on all of these feelings and thoughts that you are already having. And that's what I hear from people is they say, you know, you put into words something I already felt about guilt or obligation or about doing things that I don't want to do or keeping people in my life that I don't want to keep in my life. You put into words the idea that I'm allowed to set boundaries and budget my time and energy and money and that that's okay and also showed me how to do it in a way that doesn't make me a bad person. And that's really what the book is about. You know, my not sorry method is about, uh, you know, giving fewer better fucks to the things that make you happy, eliminating as much as you can the ones that don't and doing it in an honest and polite way, which means you have nothing to feel guilty about and you don't have to apologize for it. And what I hear from people is I felt so liberated and I felt like you were giving me permission to take that step. So, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to have been the conduit for so many revelations. Uh, I don't know if it's at the moment that it came out, it was really needed. It seems kind of like an evergreen need mm-hmm. uh, for people to be yeah. able to stop and reconsider, you know, what is really making me happy, what isn't, hold on to the former and mm-hmm. just sweep the ladder out the door. And you have a choice always. I think it's so important to remember that and reiterate that. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you have to spend your, what I call your fuck bucks, your time, energy, and money on things that serve you, even if you don't love them. You know, maybe you don't love getting up and going to your job, but that's how you get paid. And how you get paid is how you enjoy the rest of your life. So you do have to kind of budget for that. But there are so many other things that guilt and obligation that I mentioned uh, that you really don't have to do. You do have a choice. You can say no. And when you eliminate those things that you don't really care about, you don't really want to do, that you don't really have to, like you're just getting that step closer to being happy and to feeling like what success is for you. That's something that I... A fuck not given is something gained. Absolutely. You know, 100%. And I also think, like when I grew up, I suppose in a certain way, we were always taught to comply. These are the rules. This is what you're supposed to do, like in school and... You know, that was just the way things were done, whereas I, I do feel like the world is changing like that. We don't really have to comply anymore if we don't feel like it's right or if we feel like you want to stand for something else, you want to do something else. We're much more open minded now 
as a generation. And I love how you spoke to that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I'm 44 now. And I think I've had this attitude and this belief that I didn't need to be limited, you know, for my whole life. But I was locked in this, like I said, type A, overachieving, mm-hmm. oldest daughter, a very American sensibility of the path to success and the hard work and all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a very, a very female sensibility because, you know, as young girls are raised to not rock the boat, to mm-hmm. serve others, yeah. to keep people comfortable and happy. Um, you know, and so I didn't necessarily feel like I could bust out of that mold, but I know it was always in me. And so if I can do it finally in my mid to late thirties and then spend this last few years kind of explaining to other people how it can be done and why it's okay. And that dovetails with this next generation um, of people who have fewer societal restrictions and more freedom already. Like I mm-hmm. think we're we're on a path to something really good for all of us. Where did the advice in the book come from? Like your fuck budget, which I know is your time, energy, and money. That that is they, they are your fucks. Yes. And you, you uh, they're in limited supply. So <laughs> yes. spend them wisely. Uh they just everything just came out of my out of my noggin. Basically, you know, if, if your listeners are familiar with the Japanese decluttering Bible, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by mm-hmm. Marie Kondo, that had just come out right around the time I was quitting my job. I had a copy of it I was going to send to my mom because she really needs help decluttering. Uh, and then I thought, that's kind of passive aggressive. I shouldn't send this to her. Mm-hmm. And so I picked it up and I read it myself. And I'm already very tidy. And, you know, I learned a couple of new tricks about folding my my socks and things. But, um, <laughs> but really what occurred to me as I was reading it was, you know, everything that Marie Kondo is suggesting you do for your closet or your garage or your attic or your kid's playroom in terms of getting rid of all that clutter and tidying it up is what I've been doing inside my own head. This entire process of realizing that there were things about my job that I didn't have to be quite so tuned into and mm-hmm. that there were things, there were there were there there was more I wanted to do with my life in, in other ways and all of that. Like I had been kind of decluttering my mind and picking up obligations and tasks and people uh, and kind of scooping them out the door because, you know, they weren't serving me anymore. And I took the initiative to do that. And so I just thought to myself, you know, it would be funny to write a parody of this book called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Mm -hmm. Giving a Fuck. And Mm -hmm. what would that look like? And then I had all of this brain space available because I had left my job and was much less panicked. And, you know, and I wrote a proposal and that was just kind of the beginning of what became now series of six books that are not parodies of anything that are just me giving what I think is pretty common sense advice, but in a way that people... I guess, are more inclined to listen to because of all of the F-bombs in the... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a nice way to digest it. It's an easy, it's an easy read and an enjoyable read. Like you're laughing out loud when you're reading. I know you have a new book coming out, which is one I need to read, Grow the Fuck Up and How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One. I am very interested to hear about some of the lessons in this book. What do you think the number one thing is that people should know but don't know about growing up? So the book takes on sort of what I call three pillars of adulting, which is maturity, responsibility, and accountability. And just like with all of my other books, I'm trying to take a big, messy, potentially scary concept and make it really really simple for people to pick up. And at the very beginning of the book, I say, you got to learn your ABCs. It's just a different alphabet than you might've been used to. A is for actions, B is for behavior, and C is for consequences. And to be an adult, you must understand 
the concept of consequences and apply it in your daily life. And what I try to do is break up the book with, you know, kind of dictates that you would get from a parent, like, don't you take that tone with me? And then I talk about self-control and self-awareness and how you express yourself when you're disappointed and how you can argue effectively and um, how you can be a good colleague and employee and boss and friend and roommate and partner through addressing maturity and responsibility and mm-hmm. accountability. But the big underlying concept through the whole book is your actions and behavior have consequences. You know, and a two-year-old can run through the room, fling off their diaper, you know, throw toys everywhere, you know, and like track dirt into the house. And there are not that many consequences for that two-year-old because we give them a pass because they're just learning. They don't Mm -hmm. really know yet what's good behavior, bad behavior, responsible actions, Mm -hmm. irresponsible actions, and they don't understand accountability yet. But now, as adults, you've had the life experience. You understand the concept of consequences. If I do not study for this test, I will probably fail it. You know, if Mm -hmm. I talk back to my mother, she will probably ground me. You know this. Mm -hmm. You just have to apply it. So that underlying theme runs through the whole book. And then I talk, you know, I talk about what I call the three C's. You know, there's critical thinking, think it through, make a plan. Maybe don't say that thing you were going to say that's going to get you in trouble. Communication is another one. And coping. Uh, And so it really, Grow the Fuck Up kind of takes elements from my book, Get Your Shit Together, which is about motivation and organization Mm -hmm. and achieving your goals. My book, Calm the Fuck Down, which is about managing stress and solving problems. And my book, You Do You, which is about, you know, building self-confidence and being the person that you want to be in the world. And it kind of rolls it all up into one, what I think is a really good blueprint for being a success as an adult. And that can mean different things to different people, but basically it means, you know, acting like an adult is pulling your weight. Acting like an adult is not throwing tantrums. Acting like an adult is being self-sufficient and resourceful. Mm -hmm. And if you do all those things, you get treated like an adult. And Mm -hmm. that's where all Mm -hmm. of the benefits and the rewards come in, which I also detail throughout the book. So hopefully it's kind of a carrot and the stick. You know, I'm I'm telling you, you know, the way that you you really need to be, you need to make a little effort to be this way, but look at all of the doors that are open to you when you act like an adult. So I'm 30 now. I'm not in my 20s anymore. And I'm not like, I don't feel like I'm super old yet. I'm in like that weird, like in between. You're not. (laughs) You know? So I'm like, who are you aiming this book at? Like who, what age needs to grow up or is there like an age or is it just kind of a toolkit for life in general? So it's a great question because I started out wanting to write a book for young people, like really young readers, you know, 17, 18, basically anybody who was allowed to read a book with fuck in the title. (laughs) And I had this idea that, you know, I was going to be able to sort of speak to the youth. And then as I was developing the book and I was talking to my editors in the US and in the UK, they were like, you know, Sarah, everybody needs this book. (laughs) So again, what I tried to do was make it a really accessible, universal platform of advice and tips and strategies for doing all those things, for being more Mm self-sufficient, for being resourceful, for being dependable, for being self-aware, and apply it across the spectrum of somebody who's 17 could use this book, somebody who's 25 could use this book, somebody who's 41 could use this book. Because really, it is... You know, in the sense that my earlier book, Get Your Shit Together, was really laser focused on goal setting and achievement, you know, motivation, organizing, going after your own goals, whatever Mm -hmm. they may be. Grow the Fuck Up is really just about 
being a person in the world and making it as easy and pleasant on yourself and everyone around you as you possibly can. And you can still have fun and you can still have spontaneity. It's just about kind of having the all the other stuff down. <laughs> Absolutely. And who doesn't love, you know, a person who acts like a grown-up, who is, you know, considerate, who's responsible, who's polite, you know, like these are Mm -hmm. not new lessons, but I'm trying to deliver them in a way that maybe people are, like I said, more likely to want to take from a lady who says, Mm -hmm. fuck three times on every page. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it definitely makes it more like approachable and less intimidating. So I'm very Mm -hmm. excited to get my hands on that. You have other guides too. And in one, you talk about setting boundaries, which I know is something I have worked on over the past couple of years. I've definitely gotten better at it, but I know in general, it's something that people struggle with. Yeah. So my book, Fuck No, How to Stop Saying Yes, when you Mm -hmm. can't, you shouldn't, or you just don't want to, Mm -hmm. is kind of like a bookend to the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. Mm -hmm. That first book was very much philosophical uh, with, you know, definitely practical applications for getting things out of your life that you don't care about, that don't serve you. But fuck no was really about how to put the words into your mouth, how to respond when you don't want to do something, when you can't, you can't afford it, when you don't have time. Uh, because I realized over the course of you know the many years since the first book came out that people were saying often to me, okay, I get it. I'm excited about this concept. I want to give fewer better fucks, but help. I don't really know how to say it. And I don't know how to do it without people thinking I'm a jerk, without Mm -hmm. them thinking I'm a Mm -hmm. flake. You know, I don't know how to deal with my FOMO. So that's why I wrote Fuck No. And it really is kind of, if I may say so myself, the gold standard in boundary setting. But it's the kind of thing where you do have to practice and you do Mm -hmm. have to revisit. I mean, I have to revisit my own advice all the time. Just when I realize that I'm getting a little bit, you know, out of control, over committing that kind of stuff, I have to go back and say, Sarah, you said it yourself. <laughs> you know, you yeah. don't have to feel guilty about this. This is not a true obligation. You can offer an alternative that works for you. You don't have to say yes to the first thing that comes up. And so again, people think, fuck no, that sounds like, you know, a book about being an asshole. But mm. really it's about freeing yourself from these false ideas of what you have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very few things in life that you have to do. And also you can't do everything. So if you say yes to everything and you can't do everything, you're, the, the likelihood is that you're going to annoy more people by letting people down. Exactly. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're setting yourself up for failure and you, you are, you're going to piss people off or disappoint them. And that's no good either. And, you know, you also can't do everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. Multitasking is a myth. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to give yourself the time and space to do. And I talk about this in Grow the Fuck Up because Mm -hmm. adults do what they said they were going to do when they said they were going to do it. I do think women are great at multitasking, though, I have to say. Well, I have a theory that you're not really doing anything well if you're trying to do multiple things at once. You know, if you're at your kid's soccer game and or football and you're, you know, you're cheering them on, but you're also trying to write work emails mm. on your iPhone in the stands, you're probably going to make some mistakes in the emails or you're not really going to be paying attention to your kid and they're going to know it. So there are just things that I, I really believe in like prioritizing and giving yourself, like I said, the time and space to do the things you committed to and do them well by not overcommitting, by not trying to juggle too many things at mm. literally the same time. But, you know, I also can't juggle. So maybe that's just <laughs> maybe that's just my own personal uh, issue. I would drop all of those balls if I tried to juggle them. And I'm like someone who likes to have like four different things on the go, but like that, yeah, then sometimes things do get dropped and maybe that's not the best. And you know, you do enjoy things more when you can give them 100% of your like soul attention. 
I find. Well, and it's a self-perpetuating thing because when you are able to do something really well, not only are you enjoying it more because you're giving it your full focus, but you're more likely to succeed at it, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then that's going to make you feel good. And it's Mm going to give you confidence that you can do that again in in other ways, in your professional life and your personal life. So, you know, if you give yourself the chance Mm -hmm. to do something well, you benefit from Mm -hmm. having done it well. It makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. You should be doing that for yourself. I love that in your book, Fuck No, you actually lay it out for people like this is the different ways you can say no. Because I find sometimes what I do is I'm in a habit of just, I don't want to leave the message unread because it's something else I have to do later. So I'll just reply and say, yeah, yeah, of course, no problem. I'll be there, you know, rather than, you know, taking the time thinking, okay, this probably doesn't suit. And what way am I going to say no? You know, do you want to maybe run through the different ways that you have identified that you can say no? Yeah. I mean, the best gift that you can give yourself is the gift of time. So learn how to say noted, I'll get back to you. Or thanks for asking, let me check out my calendar and get back to you. You Mm -hmm. know, there's no reason in the world why you should feel that you need to say yes right away, either in person, over email, on the phone. Just learn the words, thanks, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And that will give you the built-in time to just really think, is this something I want to do? Is this something I'm capable of doing? Can I afford it? Do Mm -hmm. I have the time? In the book, I I introduce different sort of categories of naysaying. And one of them, my favorite, is the no and switch. And that's when, say, you do kind of want to do this thing, but you don't really have time or you can't afford it right now, or you don't really want to do it under the exact circumstances that it was proposed to you. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to say no and offer an alternative Mm -hmm. that works better. So, you know, if a friend invites you to a really expensive dinner out, you know, to celebrate their promotion and you can't afford it, but you really do want to celebrate your friend. You don't want to, you know, be a flake. You want to support them. You can say, no, I really can't do that, but I would love to take you out for a drink at, you know, insert the name of an affordable establishment that you feel like you can spend your fuck bucks on mm-hmm. and and still get the desired result for everybody. So that's the no and switch, which I think is really good for people who are just starting out. And for people who experience FOMO, the no for now, which involves being really honest about why now is not a good time, but please don't stop asking me. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's useful in a professional situation if you have clients and a new client comes to you and, and says, you know, I want to hire you to do this thing. And you literally cannot, you don't have the bandwidth, you won't be able to do a good job. You know that, or maybe you're about to go on vacation and you have this 30-day European world tour plant, and you can't take on this job now, Mm -hmm. but you don't want them to think that you are incapable. You don't want to lose the business, whatever. You can really honestly say, I would love to do this. I can't do it now, and here's why. I hope you'll consider waiting until I'm available, or I hope you'll come back to me next time you need somebody. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the time we have this kind of reaction, this FOMO that causes us to say yes to things and then potentially not enjoy them or not be able to do them well has to do with the fact that we are having this conversation in our head without ever just giving the other person on the other end an opportunity to listen to the truth Mm -hmm. and accept it and be cool about it. And in so many situations, the person on the other end is going to respect the fact that you told them exactly why you couldn't do something. And they're going to be much more likely to come back to you or wait for you or Mm -hmm. whatever because they don't think that you're being a flake or you're ignoring them Mm -hmm. or you just don't want to. 
so that's another one, the the no for now. A hundred percent. But I also I give... always respect people so much when they can be honest. And when if they are going to bring themselves, bring the best version of yourself. Nobody wants you there. If you don't want to be there, if you it doesn't suit you to be there. So I, I really do admire and have so much respect for people who can be honest in that way. And timely. You know, one of the ways to be polite when saying no is is to do it in a timely fashion. Don't leave people hanging if you know you don't want to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody's got a party to plan and all you have to do is check no on an evite, check no. Like they've got a budget, they've got a guest list, they've got stuff to do. Like mm-hmm. they need to know if you're coming or mm-hmm. not. So mm-hmm. just say no if the answer is no. I have a bit of a random question for you. Just having mm-hmm. these chats and like well, what your books are based on, their self-help books. Is that something that you had an interest in and you could have seen yourself going down when you were working in the corporate world? Or is it something that you've kind of fallen into as a result of the success of your first book? Uh, Absolutely not. Had no notion that this would be the direction that my life would take. Was frankly suspicious of (laughs) self-help as a genre. Um, And, you know, partly because I have always been such an independent thinker and just suspicious in general of anybody telling me what to do. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I call the no fucks given guides advice for people who hate being told what to do because that's me. And, you know, I always thought maybe that there were elements of the self-help world that were a little bit exploitative. And so I did, I shied away from it completely as an editor. I, I barely acquired anything in that vein. You know, as a reader, I was not reading it. And as a human being, you know, I just was a little bit suspicious. And I wrote the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck to be funny. Like I was, in my mind, I was like, this is a useful but hilarious kind of parody of another book. And it just took off. And that was when I kind of clued into the idea that I had a lot to say that was useful and valuable to people that is technically Mm -hmm. self-help or personal development or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it. But I, you know, am really, really cognizant of doing it in a way that is presenting this is what has empirically worked for me. I'm not trying to sell you any snake oil. If it doesn't work for you, no harm, no foul. Like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I just think this is really solid advice. And here's how you could take it. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like I'm exploiting anybody. Like, they came looking for a way to get better organized. I've got a way, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, it, it looks like that approach has borne fruit um, mm-hmm. over time, of which I'm really appreciative. But no, I had no idea I would end up I think in you, this you very speak, specific niche. <laughs> you speak a very different language to most self-help books. And I think that definitely speaks to to a lot of people who who maybe wouldn't normally fall into that category. But everybody needs a little bit of that. Like, everybody needs a little bit of guidance and a little bit of support and it's nice to be reminded, you know, that there's people out there that can give that advice. I, I find it funny that you've fallen into this role of giving people advice and being, you know, these words of wisdom when you never thought that you would be. It's it's, it's great. I mean, to be very honest, particularly my book, Calm the Fuck Down, these are me figuring out my own shit and sharing what works. Um, there's a lot of me just kind of saying like, hey, I was stricken with anxiety and panic and I had difficulty solving problems because I was freaking out all the time. And here is how I overcame that for the most part and how you can too. And also You Do You, which is my book about, you know, building self-confidence and being your own person in the world and not being ashamed of it and, you know, working with your strengths. That was something that was a long time in coming for me, a very long time. So these books are also kind of like doing double duty. They're they're my own, I'm working out my own crap. And then I'm also like being able to share it with other people. What piece of advice would you have liked to have been told when you were younger and living a life that wasn't making you happy? Oh, there's so many pieces of advice. I think that I would have liked to have been told 
to trust my instincts. Uh, I think that as a young person, I really thought I had to do things the way I thought the world wanted me to do them, even when it went against my own very strong instincts, both for self-preservation and also for, you know, having good ideas and, and being successful. So I, I wish that somebody had looked at me and said, you, you've got good instincts and you should trust them. I love that. For lots of people, they know they're not happy in what they're doing. Have you any advice for how they might go about making a change? One of the things that I think is so valuable uh, is you don't have to make big, terrifying, major change all at once. And you also don't have to necessarily make that big change in the thing that's making you unhappy. So for example, if you know that your job is making you unhappy, but you sort of can't see a, a path forward to changing it right now, you can do other things. Take other aspects of your life, your hobbies, your personal life, your love life, your friends, mm -hmm. your family, and slowly but surely increase the amount of uh, joy you're getting from those things and say, look, I got to get up and I got to go to this job every day and I can't figure out how to get out of it yet and I know that it's making me really unhappy. So what I'm going to do is basically kind of incentivize myself uh, to, to wake up and do this every day by making sure that I include other things in my day, in my week, in my life that are going to offset those feelings of unhappiness. And, you know, because the idea is that you don't ever want to feel trapped and like there's nothing you can do. And the fact is there's always something you can do. It just might not be the big thing mm -hmm. that is going to make that huge change. You know, if you're having a rocky time in your relationship and you're really considering like, oh my God, I'm not sure I want to be in this relationship anymore, but then I'd have to move out and I'd have to pay rent by myself and, you know, let alone all the emotional and psychological turmoil that this is going to create. Try gifting yourself other good things in your life, you know, starting a new practice, whether that's meditating or taking floral design courses or deciding that you're going to become a competitive uh, Scrabble player, you know, just doing something else for yourself that mm -hmm. can give you the happiness that you're lacking in that other part of your life while you figure out how to make the change in that section. That's really good advice because I think sometimes when you're going through a hard time, it can feel all consuming. That one area can feel all consuming, but there's so much more to life than that one thing you're struggling with, even if it doesn't feel like that. And it's so important to, to spread it out, to focus on other things and to bring light into your life and doors will open, you know, there'll be sparks in your brain that will, you know, you might just lead, like be led to that path that will change things for you, you know? So I think that's yeah, and a little really joy nice. injection never hurt anybody. It was so lovely to chat to you today, Sarah, and you seem so happy and you seem to be doing like absolutely amazingly well. I hope you, you are as good as you seem. <laughs> I, I'm doing all right. It was a rough couple of years, I'm mm -hmm. sure, like it was for everybody around the world. But oh, I'm absolutely. coming out of that yeah. and uh, really excited just to, to get Grow the Fuck Up out into the world and start, you know, chatting with folks worldwide about mm -hmm. uh, my methods for being an adult and getting treated like one. And then we'll see what comes after that. It must be so lovely. Every time you release one of these books, it opens you up to all these new conversations with all these new people. And you're just keeping the conversation going and the advice coming. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you got as much from it as I did. And I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Our episodes come out every Wednesday. And if that's not enough, you can also check out the bonus episode on Monday or listen back to season one of Open Book available on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts.